What's going on, golf addicts? And today we're going to hear from a guy who had in play over $1.5 million for Masters. And when I say in play, I mean wager. He's a professional sports better. And more specifically now, he's a professional golf better. And his name is Rufus Peabody. He's incredibly brilliant. Uh, the guy lives in Vegas. He's been a professional sports better for over a decade. Started with baseball, then football. And now he's really progressed to primarily professional golf, both on the PJ Tour, DP World Tour, uh, and, and, and ladies tours, okay? Averages are over $750,000 a week in play every week on the PGA Tour. He is a sharp better, and we go inside the mind with Rufus. He was incredibly generous with his time, and even at one point said, I feel like I've said too much. He doesn't want to give a lot away. He's not a tout. He doesn't sell his information. He doesn't you know, make picks. He just has a process, and we talked about a process, and let me tell you, it wrecks us, okay? Some of the things that we've been looking at, studying, and not just us, everyone in the DFS sports betting streets talk about on Twitter or whoever the talking heads are out there. He destroys a lot of the things that we think are important when it comes to predicting how well a golfer is going to play and handicapping week-to-week PGA Tour events. The guy's incredible. He's super smart. He's the founder of unabated.com. And he's a podcast host on a, on a show called Bet the Process. Rufus was awesome. There's so many nuggets to glean from this. You're probably going to listen to it more than once. It's a great one. So let's get started. Welcome, Rufus Peabody. The dude is a legend. He's a he's a, a professional gambler. Very different from the people that you hear on our shows week in, week out. Loves betting on golf. In fact, I saw a tweet recently from Rufus. I love golf an irrational amount. I would be very happy playing all day, every day. And that is the definition of the tour junkies. That's why we call them golf addicts. We love it. Uh, he is the founder of unabated.com, which is data tools for a lot of for sports betting. Uh, I haven't seen any golf on there yet, Rufus, so I want to ask you about that. Also the host of the Bet the Process podcast, and actually a damn good golfer. You know, Rufus, I got to say, we find a lot of these, you know, these, these golf bettors and the, maybe the data nerds, if you will, and they've never played golf. Or if they pick up a club, they suck. But you're like a seven handicap, right? And welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, I don't think I'm a very good golfer, but I actually in the like playing, I've been playing almost every day the last month and a half and I'm down to a 4.6. What? Wow. Yeah, just the I last, know. the last 10 days I broke 85 times. Dude, but, you got to stop putting in some of those scores, brother. We'll have you up here for a, a member guest or something. Get that handicap up a little bit, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, shot, I shot 88 yesterday. So, oh yeah. Well, it happened. Um, congratulations. Coming back that. down to earth. That's killer. Um, so, Rufus, I want to get right into it. We got a bunch of a bunch of questions. I guess first off, like establishing for the listener who who may not know or or know you, like I have heard rumors of some of your your betting tales. Um, I've heard that you and you can confirm or deny some of these. I've heard that a, that on a maybe Masters week you have somewhere between a million or one point five million in play betting on the Masters. Um, Obviously, you were just uh, kind of got some airtime for your Mito Pereira five hundred dollar ticket at like three hundred to one for the PGA Championship. Uh, but I guess for the person who doesn't know you, like try to establish a little bit about you know um, why why you've pivoted recently to strictly betting on golf, and then at a high level, like what your week looks like betting on golf. Well, well, I, st- I still bet on football. Oh, you do? Okay, but. Yes, but I'm spending most of my time on the betting side on golf. Just gotcha. golf's year round. It's my biggest edge. Um, and so, yeah, I've been doing this for a living since 2009, betting on sports. And, and golf has generally been the biggest edge for me over that time period. And, you know, as markets become more efficient, it, it sort of makes more sense to specialize more and more. It's just hard to do 
like four different sports well enough to beat a more mature market. Yep. So is the Masters rumor true that I just said? Is that how much you had in play for Masters? Uh, north, north of that, actually. North of that. Jeez. How much do you have in play on a regular week? Regular colonial week? Wow. Charles Schwab week? I mean, this year it's been a little bit less. It all depends on what value mm-hmm. I can find. Um, but I would say on a normal week, probably between PGA and European Tour in the five to 700,000 range. Gotcha. And majors are in the one and a half to 2 million typically. Love, Love it. God, that's awesome. Um, all right. So at a high level though, tell me what does your week look like in terms of betting on golf? So starting on Monday, like a, a high level, you know, and we're going to get into the nitty gritty details of some of this stuff, Okay. but high level, the, the new golf tournament begins on, you know, golf week begins on Monday. So through, you know, first ball in the air on Thursday and then live opportunities, the end of a golf tournament, like what is, what are you doing? What's, what's your process? So the modeling has basically been done ahead of time. And so when the golf tournament, the previous week ends on Sunday, um, once the data is, you know, final and everything, um, I'm pulling that data and then I'm essentially ingesting it into my computer and running um, a bunch of code to update golfer rankings and, you know, and various things, um, situational effects, things like that. And I'm, I'm generally hoping to crank out my numbers, initial numbers Sunday night, if I, like, if I can. Um, and then, and then, so Monday morning, um, my brother who kind of runs the, the trading side for me is, is able to sort of send out, um, sort of, sort of these high priority bets to our betting partners. So we'll hit outrights early. Um, cause those tend to, I mean, it's just, they're, they're smaller markets overall, but, but there's some good prices available early on outrights typically. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when matchups come out, um, you know, we'll, we'll bet those, um, we're trying not to, you know, there, there's this balance between trying to get, well, trying between edge, I guess, and volume. You bet something earlier when the market's less mature, you're not going to get as much down, but um, you're going to get it at, at, a, at a larger edge typically. Yeah. And so a lot of it, there is some sort of art to it and knowing how the, mar- you know, knowing what is and isn't going to influence the market. And so uh, let's see. I mean, the, the, the big books come out with matchups, like the, the, the market gets a lot more mature on Tuesday after like bookmaker comes out with their matchups, which kind of shapes the market. Um, you know, round one stuff comes out Tuesday evening. Typically um, we're just, we're looking for opportunities. We're sending things to betting partners. Um, and, you know, after each round, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, run, run simulations, um, look for value bet. <laughs> hmm. Are you, so at from round to round is is the live betting being done at the at the end of the round or is it happening in the middle or both or it just depends on the opportunity? Uh, I'm not betting during the round You're at not. all. No, okay. just right, just after the round. And and you probably watch golf too, right? I'm sure that's part of the process. I do. Uh, I don't need to, but you know, I mean, I I, I enjoy watching golf. That's <laughs> sure. And if I can call it work, then that's a huge win, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Has there been any sports books that have uh, banned you or limited you so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just part of the, that's yep. part of the business, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so for a let, – let's talk about, like, a beginner intermediate golf. I, I, wanna, I want early on for people in this interview to, like, um, feel like they've, they can start taking things away from, from you. So – uh, how should a beginner intermediate golfer approach a betting card for a normal, a normal week, right? 
um, in terms of, and, and I know this is dynamic. That's a key word in all this, that, that it's dynamic and it obviously depends on different situations, but in general, um, do you think there's a rule of thumb for things like percentage of their bankroll or how many units they should be trying to win and, and bet from week to week or what percentage of, I'd also love to hear more about like your recommendation maybe to a beginner intermediate golf better on how their total exposure should be broken down between outrights and other finished position bets and, and matchups and um, things like that. Uh, so maybe talk to me about like, if you had a, a, an intermediate level golf better sitting here looking at you wanting that kind of advice, what would you tell them? Well, I don't think there's one way to do things. Um, I think what, what has always worked for me is to kind of scale things up slowly. You know, I'm not, I'm not going balls to the wall on something until, you know, until I get more comfortable with it. And so you, you develop a feel for things as well, the more you do it. So, um, I would say don't bet more than you can afford to lose, obviously. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to be a better, better, um, than you are later. I mean, than you are now yeah. later. So, um, the other big recommendation I'd say is to bet into lower hold markets where you can. So, and price shop, uh, price shopping is, is huge, but you know, outright markets, typically the hold, um, on most books is between 25 and 40%, sometimes even higher actually. And so if you're just, you know, if you're going to lose your money a lot, a lot more quickly betting outrights typically. Oh, yeah. um, whereas if you're betting into a matchup market, a lot of the time, if it's minus 110, minus 110, that's only four and a half percent right there. So, um, you know, I, you have less of a barrier or, you know, um, to profitability. I mean, I guess it's, it's easier to, um, overcome four and a half percent than it is to overcome 30%. Yeah. So, uh, that said, there's times, I mean, there's, with, with the U S books, there's a lot of times that books will have like one book might have a number that's very different than other books on, on these outrights. So, um, you can, I guess what they say is reduce your synthetic hold. Like if you took, if you looked at the best price available on each golfer, it's going to be, um, a much lower hold market. Um, and so like price shopping, if, if you're going to, if you're going to bet outrights, make sure you have multiple books, uh, to choose from and, and, and pick the best price. For the beginning um, golf bettors, can you just briefly explain what hold percent is and why a hold percent of 25% is significant from, say, 40%? So, so with outrights, if you added up all the probabilities associated with the odds on each golfer, it would add up to 125 to 140%. So basically, the book is expecting to make 25 to 40% um, from each bet. So. You know, whereas a market minus one ten minus one ten, the book's only expecting to to make four point seven six percent. That's that's a hold there. So uh, just because if you if you sort of sum sum those prob the probabilities associated with the odds, and then one divided by that, um, it yeah. Do you do that same calculation for say, you know, top ten, top twenties, head to heads, and and all the other bets outside of outrights? What, which calculation? I mean, can you, for the hold in a market? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You added it. So, so for top five, let's say if there's dead heat rules, which means that ties reduce. Uh, so if two guys tied for fifth, you would only get, you know, the bet would be half of a win and half of a loss if you had a top five. Um, so in that case, there are five winning entities, I guess, winning golfers. Um, and so in that case, if you summed up all the, the probabilities associated with the odds um, and divided that by five, that would be you know that's the over round there um that's and so 
I'll say this though. I, I find that there's much less value on outrights. Um, I mean, in a lot of these sort of books with, with higher hold, um, I'm just not going to find as many, um, I'm not going to find as many bets as I will on, on something like matchups, just as a percentage of what's available. So, so would gotcha. you say, would you say matchups is probably what makes up the, the majority of your exposure on a week to week basis? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's largely too, because I can get a lot more down on matchups. It's just a bigger market. Yeah. What, um, and are you more of a tournament matchups round by round both? So tournament matchups are, are, are definitely bigger for me. Um, I think the problem is that, I, so I tend to shape the market a good amount um, on, in tournament matchups. And, and so, um, you know, it, it's a lot easier to price round one matchups if you already know what the tournament matchup prices are. And that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. And so there, there, just, there aren't as many opportunities yeah. in, in round matchups, but I, I still, you know, do find them here and there. If you have a, um, like, let's just use a hypothetical example, let's say, like, your model or simulation is saying golfer A is minus 140 over golfer B, but the sports book has them at, say, even money. Do, do you just keep firing at them till they get to, like, 130, or do you just fire at once and then just see how the book reacts, or how do you handle that? Well, I... So there's different types of books, like the, the books like DraftKings and FanDuel, these recreational books, they're going to take that bet and they might not even move the line, but they won't let you bet again. Mm-hmm. And so they're not a true market making book, but market, market making books like, like Pinnacle, like uh, Bet Chris, um, even like Bet Online, if you, if you, you know, they'll move it and then you could fire again. And so it depends on how much they moved it, but you know, I'll, I'll bet something down to about a 4% edge typically. So if I could, I would keep firing on it generally. Gotcha. Um, but the other thing is, if the if the market as a whole is is even money, you know, I could bet it at different books as well, and so and then see what the market does, and then so you know, I want to get down as much as I can at the best price. Now, Rufus, you do DFS too, right? You play golf DFS somewhat, right? I did a little bit. I don't really anymore. Yeah. Did you ever like, or I mean, thinking through? Would you use books like uh, some of these market making books, like you're talking about Pinnacle, Bet Chris? Would you use those head to head matchups to help maybe identify potential edges in DFS in terms of like you see a head to head on a guy that makes a lot more sense for one player who's maybe a lower owned possible pivot? Did you ever do that or do you recommend that? Or how, how would you, is there a way that you leverage those market making books in DFS? All right, Golf Addicts, before we get back to the Rufus Peabody interview, I want to take a quick second and thank our sponsors, Front Nine Coffee. Frontninecoffee.com is where you need to go to get all of the delicious goodness, the coffee for golfers, okay? Small artisan batch coffee that is not even roasted yet. It's going to get roasted when you order it, so it's very fresh. You can pick whether you want whole bean, coarse grind, fine grind. They're going to roast it the next day, and they're going to ship it to you anywhere in the U.S. or Canada within the next two days so you get fresh coffee delivered to your door Uh you know, for golfers, by golfers, it's Front Nine Coffee. So go to Front Nine, that's F O R N T, the number nine, coffee.com, and use promo code TJ10 to get 10% off your entire order. Now, this is delicious coffee, okay? This isn't the cheap stuff that's been sitting on the grocery store shelves, getting gassy and nasty, okay? And they're longtime supporters of the Tour Junkies podcast, so show them some love. If you love us, give Front Nine Coffee some love today. 
All right, let's get back to the interview with Rufus Peabody. Um, I think that if, you, if you're not modeling stuff yourself, then that's a good way of doing it. And I think that's kind of something that the, the DFS world caught on to. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I'm just using my own stuff. But, but by, the, by the time the tournament starts, generally, the, I'm not finding any value on tournament matchups anywhere. Yeah. So I, I'm able to bet things pretty much into shape. Um, and so that's, um, you know, but I think that's also going to be reflected in ownership too. And so I think it's, I think DFS is largely about reacting to what other people are doing and trying to stay a step ahead just because, you know, if ownership seems to be too much keyed on what these market making books are at, I mean, you can, you can find spots where, you know, this guy might be low owned and maybe you're giving up a little, a little bit of equity there, but it's going to be beneficial just because you're so let you, you get leverage there. Yeah. At least if we're talking about um, sort of the GPPs. Right. What, um, so what, what would be some of the biggest mistakes that you would see golf bettors make on a consistent basis? Or what would you warn somebody against um, week to week? I mean, uh, golf bettors or I mean, bettors in general, I would say, you know, don't chase your losses. Don't bet more than you can afford to lose. Um, yep. Have as many outs as you can, as many places to bet just so that you can, just so you can price shop. So you can get the best price because you might think that like the difference between minus 115 and minus 120 is, you know, is, is, you know, small. If you're like, if you have a $10 bet on something, you're like, well, that's, you know, so what? I don't care about if you, you know, I don't care about, if yeah. you know, it's going to be like, I don't care about 20 cents or whatever. Um, I don't know how much it actually is, but, um, but it does add up over time. And I mean, I, I literally went back last year and I was like, well, what, you know, how much is, if, if I returned, if I, if I bet everything at a, a two cents worse, like that would have been like six figures, right? Like, wow. so yeah. I think, um, I, yeah, I mean, it's just, if, cause you're just, it, it compounds. Yeah. Um, what about, so we've talked a little bit about like the percentage of your bankroll week to week, it, it primarily ties up in head to head matchups. Um, you maybe take a you maybe grab a few early outright values that you find on a monday or something but what about um talk to me about the finished position bets like are you doing top five are you doing top five bets on anybody that you have an outright on are you doing top 20s first round leaders like what what about those bets i don't think i've ever found more than like two percent of value ever on a first round leader bet. Mm-hmm. like the first round leader market i would say don't bet into that that is a and that seems to be a popular market that people like for you know, people are like, well, you know, I mean, it, it seems like people yep. give out picks in first round leaders a lot, but I think that that market, um, it is, there's a high hold, um, and it's fairly easy to price. Um, so I advise not betting into that market. You know, you're going to find, you're going to, you're going to have better opportunities betting into a, just the win markets. But, you know, yes, I do bet into finished position markets, um, mostly in the United States. Um, also, I have access to, I can, well, I have betting partners in Europe, and so I can get, bet, I don't know if you're familiar with each ways, yep. which are, yeah, half of the bet is, is to win, and then half of it is to place, which, and then, like, for example, place might pay the top six at one-fifth the odds of the, of the win price. Yeah. So, um, so that, that, that's kind of nice, because I, I like that those reduce your variance, too. Um, it's not all or nothing. I guess and I was and there thinking, can be value sometimes, especially with, with underdogs, because with each ways, everybody gets cut, but like everybody's odds get cut by the same, um, by the same fraction. So if you think about like, let's go an extreme example. Let's say someone's a thousand to one. 
um, you know, for them to be top six now is 200 to one. But it's not there. If you look at like when they finish top five, it is going to be an extreme like tail. It's a huge outlier. And, and they are disproportionately more likely to be, you know, sixth place, then fifth place, then fourth place. It's going to fall down really, really quick. I mean, they're probably going to be 20x more likely to get sixth place than to get like second place. And so there's so, so there can be some value in underdogs there just because of the, the place equity. Even if they're, you know, there can be a negative, you can have a negative EV bet on the, on the win part of it, but, but the, the value on the place bet can make up for that. Um, so, you know, the U.S. markets, there are some, uh, you know, I, I can get down at some top back stuff with, with some betting partners, but I will say, like, do I find, do I bet the top back stuff if I have value on it outright? It all depends on the price I'm getting. So, um, typically, if I have value on it outright, I might have value on a top five, um, but it, it, it does, it's not always that way. Yeah, I guess I was asking that as like, that's kind of, Probably not exactly the same thing as the each way, but it's it feels like a workaround in the U.S. to have like yeah. your outright and then bet the same guy top five. Um, but you don't you don't get like top six or top eight options either. Um, you get the top twenty bets though. The top I mean anything bets. anything where I could, like yeah, you know, I, I love I love stuff like that if I can reduce variance a bit too. Yeah, just because yeah, you made a good point too, um, and and I know we talk about it on the podcast quite a bit as well. Um, like any golfer in the field can be a great bet at a certain number. Any golfer in the field can be a terrible bet at a certain number. Um, and I think a lot of times, especially for beginners, you know, they'll kind of lock on to someone and, and, you know, like the number is almost irrelevant to them. Whereas, you know, I mean, it, it can be anyone, but you know, they could be a, a great bet at 80 to one and an absolutely terrible bet at 50. Um, and then just making that distinction and, and not really caring about the player per se and, and really only caring or caring about the number. Right. I mean, like I bet Mito Pereira at 300 to one, which is a fantastic price. And that yeah. was not available for very long. No. Um, that was Monday morning. Yeah. And, you know, some people were like, oh, look, I got, you know, we're like, you know, I went through that too. I got him at 170 to one or something like that. And I'm like, well, I, I only made him 200. I made him 210 to one. So 300 one was a really, really nice edge. but he closed 100 and something to one and I actually was lower on him than a lot of the analytics crowd. So it's <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah, a really, really nice example. Are you, so I, let me, before Ben gets to the next question, are you going to, I meant to ask you that earlier. Are you making your own numbers on these guys before you open up the first line at a book? Or is that what your, is that what your, your um, systems are doing for you? Yeah. So, so what I, so my approach, I probably should have said this before um, I run simulations. So I, I have projections for the, like, I have I generate like ground level projections for golfers, um, which actually is I do stuff at the whole level and then you build that up to the round level, but I'm simulating at the round level. So I'll, I'll run, you know, um, I think on a given week I do anywhere from like 200 to 300,000 simulations of a tournament, um, depending on the field size and, and how motivated I feel. Um, actually it's just about running code, but, but then, so after each round, it sort of updates the golfer's skill and, and, you know, um, and so, you know, you go through the four rounds of the tournament, um, and basically I, I from those simulations, uh, those Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo simulations, I can price out basically, um, almost any type of bet. I mean, not like hole in one stuff, but yeah, you know, wow. but all the major markets, That's sick. when you get down to like, um, 
round level and hole by hole stuff, do you do you take into account like a player's preferred ball flight or you know if they're lefty or righty? Like Augusta would be probably the easiest example of you know it always favors kind of a right to left ball flight. Do you ever take any of that into consideration? Um, no, not explicitly. That's something I, I wish I had better data on that. It, it's more of a data issue. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there is something to that, like in course fit. I mean, like, or, or just think about someone like Bubba, like he's lefty. I mean, he's a lefty, his ball flight fits Augusta. He likes moving the ball around, but there's certain courses for him where he just feels more comfortable too. Like he doesn't like courses that feel claustrophobic. Um, he likes ones where he feels like he can be, he can be creative. I mean, he's really good at like river highlands and, you know, um but yeah so i mean i think that there there clearly is some there is a a comfort um and and i think that clearly ball flight um does matter in terms of course fit but it's something that i haven't really delved too deep into yet just because of just because i don't have great data on it i mean it's yeah. I need I need someone following every player around and like you know, looking at the, looking at the man stuff. Uh, understood. Is is there anything that um, you found in your testing or simulations that was either really surprising to you or something that you felt confident it was one way, and then after you tested it, you're like, damn, that's the exact opposite of what I expected to find. It's a tough question, putting me on the spot. <laughs> I feel like there have been a lot of those things over the years, yeah. but I can't really think of one off the top of my head right now. Okay. We, we can circle back if you think of it. Um, so I, I know, you know, and some of the, the stuff I've done, not, not with golf betting, but with, um, with trading and building automated systems, it's amazing to me how I'll go in with a theory and it, it kind of done test great, and then I flip the theory exactly backwards, and it, it magically works and has an edge. Um, so I was just curious if you had found anything like that in, in golf and, and or just betting in general. Well, I'll say one thing that, like, you know, you're working with, I mean, yes, you have a lot of data, but at the same time, it's easy to be, like, you can be fooled by randomness. I mean, you're going to find lots of things that look like they have very significant effects. I mean, like, for example, Southern Hills, in 2007 played very much as a like a course where like really really good approach play um or approach players overperformed and i kind of said you know and, and i think the narrative is the second shot golf course and i personally don't think there's a such thing as a second shot golf course and from everything i found um oh here's okay i'll get, here's something actually for everything i found there isn't really any consistent predictive power to how much a, a, someone's like strokes gained approach actually is going to matter on a course it matters more in so far as other things can matter less. Gotcha. And you can say that like short iron play matters more or long iron play matters more. So, you know, like Jason Kokrak is a great example of a guy that is a really, really good long iron player. And he gains a lot um, on relative to an average PGA tour pro on long irons, but not really on wedge, wedges or short or, you know, or short irons. Whereas um, that's, you know, someone like JT is a great wedge player. Uh, and so, so maybe you can help settle a debate that David yes. and I have been, and Pat has been having for probably the last two years or so is, um, you know, I mean, it's not like a big consideration, but it's something I look at and make it, you know, a small percentage of consideration every week is 
proximity from certain distance buckets and how someone ranks in the field compared to that. And, you know, do, do you think that has any predictive um, edge to it or is that just random noise and you're digging too deep? I, I don't think so. I, I think in a way you're not digging deep enough if you want to use proximity, mm-hmm. You don't know where, you know, we, we don't have data like Matthew Fitzpatrick has with every single shot since he was 15 years old. And where he, where yeah. he, if you knew where someone was aiming, that that's what that's the thing. And so especially with like runoff areas, you could hit a shot that looks like it's, you know, that that was very close to being a really, really good shot, really close and ends up being, you know, 50 feet away. Um, whereas another guy plays a safe shot to 25 feet and, you know. Like the the guy, yeah. So I mean, it, a lot of it's sort of the risk reward thing too. And so you not knowing where guys are aiming is tough. So I mean, I will say I've done some stuff myself, like categorizing approaches into sort of buckets based on like based on proximity and sort of looking at the value of that, just to sort of see um, the how much you know your typical like strokes gain um, approach stuff over or undervalues. Uh, that in terms of its predictive value. So a good, like, for example, let's say a guy um, makes a hole in one on a, on a course that's averaging, let's say a par three, averaging 3.2 strokes. Um, so he gained 2.2 strokes on that approach. You know, if he'd hit it to an inch, he gains 1.2 strokes. Is there any skill in actually getting it there? You know, I mean, and I think, what was it like tiger's best like during Ti- the peak of tiger's career he was last on the pga tour in hole outs or something like that so i mean there really is i don't think there's much to uh, i think speed fans might disagree but like the whole out shot so i mean so it, it's a lot of it for me is finding finding where finding things where uh trying to sort of take out the luck mm. but I do think the proximity stuff, if you had more, if we had more information on it, like I, I think, you know, I, I think it could add value um, if you put it in context. But I think just just looking at proximity overall is going to um, I, I don't think we'll have that much. value. So, so Rufus, just to clear this up, Rufus has sided with me and I'm grateful about that. I'm appreciative of this. Thank you, Rufus. Um, and also, you know, we didn't even talk about the fact that, you know, if it says it's. Is, is if the bucket is 175 to 200 and it's a 174 shot, right? Then it goes in another bucket, yeah. which is dumb. Or we don't know either because we all play golf. It could be 155 to the hole, but based on wind, based on elevation, based on adrenaline pumping, whatever it is, you're, you're, you may not be trying to hit it 155. So we don't know all these things, right? And so Rufus, I, I appreciate you, man. Thanks. All right, golf addicts, we're going to get right back to the show here in just a second. But before we do, I got to remind you guys that the Nut Hut Discord server is where you can get VIP access to me, to Pat, to, to Ben Little, to AC, the smartest price picks guy I know, all right? And all the, the community that you could ever ask for is in that Discord server. We've had verified members win over $6 million in the Discord server since June of 2020. There's over 700 members in there right now. And it's $10 a month or $90 a year to get in it, okay? There is a free version if you're already on Discord or if you want to set up your account and just check it out to see what it's all about. You can click in the description below and try the free version, but there's a lot of things hidden for you in the free version, like caddy info that we get from our friends on the course every single week that we pass along to you. I read every single interview and press transcript 
leading up to each golf tournament. I screenshot the stuff that you only need to know for betting or DFS, and I put that in the Caddy Info channel. Curate all that information so you don't have to. Our, our friend Caddy John, former PJ Tour Caddy, is on there every single week giving his, his thoughts, his breakdown on the golf course, and ex- all the other stuff that you need. And the community is there. And listen, while there's a ton of golf information, we know that people love to bet and play DFS on other sports. So there's NBA threads, MLB, NFL, UFC. There's even a disc golf uh, guru in there, right? Helping people make a ton of money, you know, and it's just been a growing community. It's the best part of what we do. We don't charge our listeners, our followers, our readers, our email subs, anything for the content that we put out at tourjunkies.com. We usually put it all to the sponsors and advertisers. Everything we write on our website, none of it's behind a paywall. Our emails are obviously free. The only thing that you pay for directly to get access to with Tour Junkies is the Discord server, and it's the Nut Hut. So go to tourjunkies.com, click on Nut Hut, check it out. $10 a month, $90 a year, you can cancel at any time, um, and just give it a shot. I promise you, you won't regret it. It's also the one place that you can get on Wednesday nights at around 8.39 p.m. Eastern for at least an hour, two, sometimes three. You get live chats with me, with Pat, with some other experts that we have on there weekly. That's where we can answer all your questions about whatever you're playing, whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking in terms of golf betting and DFS, or sometimes we just chat about life in general. So it's a great community growing on Discord right now. And I know it could be intimidating if you've never done Discord, but trust me, it's easy once you get in there and get going. So check it out right now. Link in the description. And now back to the show. Thank you. You want, you yeah, want and the buckets, like the buckets are, are you're arbitrarily defining buckets. Yes. I mean, I think it's an easy way to look at things because, you know, rather than saying, oh, this guy, like it's, you know, here's his sort of, you know, yardage slope factor for how he gets better or worse with, you know, it, but, but I do think, it, I mean, that part is tough though, because you also have guys that are more comfortable with certain, certain distances. Yeah. Like he's like, cause, cause a certain distance may be a stock, you know, shot you know, and in other distances between clubs, but really quickly back to what I had said about like approach, not really mattering. It's not that approach doesn't matter on a course. Like it's just that it doesn't matter. I found that it doesn't have more predictive value at one course than another in terms of globally. Yeah. So I was, so let's, let's sit here for a second. Cause this is really interesting, especially because like us and every other podcast, YouTube channel, whatever, Strokes gain approach is the stat. Yeah, I know. That's the one, right? I love, everybody, everybody always talks about that. So how do you, but, but if, you, if that has all these errors and the proximity has all these errors, then how are you quantifying that Jason Kokrak is a good long iron player and Justin Thomas is a good wedge player? How, how do you get to that? How do you arrive? I, at am, that? Using, I am using strokes. I, I, well, so I have my own strokes gain at the shot level I build. Um, just be using that, using sort of those, you know, the X, Y, all the, just all the shot length data. Um, and so I'm able to, yeah, essentially using that, I'm able to do that, but I'm not saying it doesn't have value. I'm just, yeah. I, yeah. You're not saying it, it doesn't, value, but it's, it certainly doesn't have the same value that off the T stuff does. Okay. So, so then rank the, oh, just in general, the strokes gained metrics that you think have the most predictive value. You would say it sounds like off the T then approach, you know, probably. I'm not sure between approaching around the green. I think putting is last, but the, I mean, the, they all matter, but it, it's like, it depends on what time horizon I was looking at to evaluate a player. There's certain things that stabilize quicker than others. Mm. Like putting takes a lot longer to stabilize, for yeah. example, than you know, you, you're not going to fake hitting the ball 350 yards no. unless you hit a cart path. Yeah. So 
But, and you can make kind of the same argument with around the green too, kind of like what you just made with um, proximity and approach is that, I mean, at least to me and in, in my personal golf experience, I mean, a lot of that is kind of like lie dependent and did you short side yourself and all that kind of stuff um, can have a big impact on, you know, what your end of the day strokes gain number is around the green compared to just, you know, looking at it shot by shot. That's a really good point. And I think that's, and that's an area, that's why I think strokes gain off the tee matters like so much. It's because we're, we're able to measure it really well. Like everybody's starting at the same place. Whereas with, I mean, of course, like, you know, it doesn't always know that if you miss right on this hole, that's way worse than missing left or, or, um, you know, it's some, you know, being a yard off the fairway in the, in the primary rough is, you know, I mean, you're getting penalized, but it was very close to being a very, really good drive if the right side was favored. Um, but yeah, out of, you know, on approaches, like there's certain, you know, you could have a really bad lie and absolutely nothing you can do with the ball. Um, and, and like, it's not a bad, well, maybe it, yeah. And, and you're getting essentially docked for that shot, but there really wasn't much you can do. So I think that's part of the issue there, especially yeah, with that and in around the green. And even with putting to some extent too, I mean, where, where did you, what was your leave? You know, I mean, yeah. what, like if you're, uh, let's say 16 at Augusta or something with the, um, you know, if you're, let's say the, the, the Sunday, uh, the Sunday pin, the typical Sunday pin, if you're, if you leave it, if you're, well, what's that back? Well, front left back. back left. I mean, I don't know if it's considered front or back left cause it's further back, but it's like, yeah. but, but if, if let's say you missed in the Northeast quadrant or something, you're, you know, you're probably not going to have anything inside of eight, 10 feet. Right. Yep. So speaking of putting, how do you, you just said, you know, putting is the lowest in terms of predictive value in terms of this, just the stroke gain stats. How do you weight putting yourself? Um, and in terms of the variance and do you, do you evaluate things like the, um, the surface that you're on, whether it's bent, Bermuda, whatever, uh, the speeds of those greens typically, or um, short-term, long-term putting? Like, how, talk to me about just in general, what does Rufus think about uh, the, the putting stats putting. and variance? Yeah. So first off, I build out sort of like, it isn't just short-term, long-term. It's like there's sort of a DK rate that I found for each of these different th- things. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think you could say, the putting is something that, you know, short-term fluctuations in performance don't have as much predictive value as in other areas. Um, in terms of grass type, I've certainly looked at that. Um, you know, you have guys like Keith Mitchell when he won, where did he win? Honda. A few years ago. Honda, Honda right, where he talked about how much more comfortable he was on Bermuda. And, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I, but, but when I look at it, I can't find anything about guys. Like I can, I have a thing that's, I look at how much a guy's overperformed in different areas. Like, it, you know, how many strokes does this guy overperformed putting on Bermuda greens and how, how much does that, how much would, would I predict he would, he's going to overperform in the future on them, you know, based on that and stuff like that. And there, you, in some areas there's, you know, you can find some small effects, but it, it's, it's pretty marginal to be honest. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a good narrative. Yeah. But, and I'm, I and I'm, I'm sure there are, but then again, like maybe I, it, it may just be that I'm not looking at it in the, I don't want to say the right way, but in a way that I, I mean, but yes, the right way, because I can't. So knowing, 
if I knew that Keith, knowing that Keith Mitchell grew up playing Bermuda greens, like if I added that, you know, it's probably going to be better, but there could be a guy that overperformed putting on Bermuda greens who is not even a good, like who, who just happened to be, it's just variance. He got lucky. He, he putted better than normal those weeks and had nothing to do with the fact that they're Bermuda. So, you know, I, I think, uh, I do think that there is value to sort of that qualitative information. Um, it's, it's just harder to be able to, it's harder to put a value and quantify it. Um, yeah. And you've got a lot of players like, like Kevin Kisner is a perfect example. And, and he's been on the podcast several times talking about how much he hates POA greens and, you know, he never wants to play on them, but then you pull his player card up and his strokes gained on POA is like identical to Bermuda, identical then. Well, well, here's the thing. Everybody's playing on it too. He's like, you know, the, the, you know, it's bumpy. You get all these bad breaks. Everybody gets bad breaks. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, I want to talk about, first of all, like Rufus is about to shorten up all the four junkies content. Cause we're slowly eliminating every stat we talk about. <laughs> saying it so our, our shows are going to get a lot shorter. We're just gonna be like, yeah, we like this yeah. guy. <laughs> Hell if we know why, but we like this guy. Um, Okay, let me ask you this. I'll, a big thing is course history. I heard you on uh, Establish the Run with Adam Levitan talk about course history. We're, we, we tend to believe that course history matters. There are other people in the space that think it doesn't. We tend to believe that it does matter to how much. We're not sure. Obviously, it varies by course and by player, uh, conditions, all that kind of stuff. But how, does your, how do you take it into account? Uh, and, and, you know, another question that I know, like, Ben and I like to look at sometimes is like rather than course history, sometimes you may look at how did a player perform like tee to green and maybe it's greens and reg or it's ball striking off the tee and approach on that course. Do you think that's more predictive? Talk to us about course history. Yeah, so I actually do look at course history in different for the different um, stat types for the different like what do you, whatever you call them categories. Okay. So putting versus off the tee approach around the green. Uh, course history, I think, like clearly does matter. Um, and I think you're right with what you said about how it matters more for, for certain courses than other courses. And I think you could probably, as a general rule, say the more unique a course is, the more course history is going to matter, yeah. more quirky it is. Um, yeah. But I think that course, there are, course history is very distinct from course fit. So course history, I mean, if you think about it, if you could get, if you were able to do course fit, the, the better you can do course fit and figure out what skills matter at a course the less course history is going to matter because you're going to eat up like, I guess, most of what is what makes that course unique and what would make somebody good at it. So I think you don't want to, you want to make sure you don't double count, I guess. Mm. I like you that. want to see how, like, because I, I look at how a player did relative to expectation um, for that course, though, based on how that, how that course fits his skills. So when you do that, it's probably going to matter a little bit less. but. Uh, but clearly, I mean, for me, I think it picks up on things like, you know, is a right to left ball flight preferred here? You know, things like that. So what about like, so one thing that I don't really, like, I guess the word is believe in. Um, and you can, you can, you've already, you've already made me feel better about my proximity belief. So if you want to shoot me down on this one, you can. Uh, I'm not a big, like correlated courses guy. Um, so like people who say, okay, oh, yeah. man, this thing, colonial is like a, it's like a Harvard town because it's, you know, it requires accuracy off the tee precision and you're hitting into these small greens. So look at leaderboards and performance from these, these 
you know, from these years at this course to kind of help you, un, you know, mine value here at, at this week? Like, talk to me about correlated courses and your, your thoughts on that. You said you're not a big believer in it? I'm not. I'm not either. Yes. You know, I've, I've, I've done, then I'm smarter I, I, than I thought I was. I'm basically just telling you nothing matters, it seems like, yeah, right? Yeah, you kind of are. That's the one part I, I, I don't so like about it. I have delved deep into it. I think I did. It was like, I think I, I looked into it like 10 years ago in really in depth. That's how long I've been doing this. 10 years ago. And, and tried to essentially come up with like, figure out what, how much to weight a guy's re, like performance, essentially like a multiplier, like to say, okay, well, you know, I know how much last week's worth relative to the other week, but what's the multiplier on this course for that course? So it was this, basically this big matrix that said, you know, you know, Riviera gets a weight of 1.2 to predict Muirfield Village or something like that. Mm. That's not actually what it said. Mm -hmm. but, um, but the thing is what, what I found and, and this was like proper, these were like properly regressed to the mean and all that. Like it was, it was what I found was that when I applied all this, I ended up like the most had ever changed a guy's projection per round was like 0 0.03 strokes. So basically nothing. Yeah. I love that. Interesting. I think it, if you're not doing course fit stuff, then it probably would matter more. Mm. yeah but because there, there there certainly are similarities but but why not just go to the source and say okay this course is the courses are similar because you need to be accurate off the tee well then let's just look at the accuracy off the tee rather than right. how someone did this other course right so i'm assuming so, like how do you approach a course where we have no data on like uh, uh, whether it's a major course that either i mean southern hills is a great example the last time they played it it was almost a completely different golf course so it was worthless to look at much else um or if it's a new course something like that i mean i'm assuming you probably i'm guessing the answer is yeah i just don't look at it i don't care it's like still going to come down to your your course fit based on what you do know of the golf course right all right golf addicts we're going to get right back to the show here in just a second but before we do i want to remind you to subscribe to the emails that we send free and weekly every tuesday every wednesday on tuesday we hit you with the heavy petting email it's foreplay for golf betters and dfs lovers okay and in the heavy petting email, we're going to give you some nuggets, some things you need to remember about the golf course, about that tournament, some things we've not covered in the podcast just yet. But key reminders when it comes to Tuesday, starting to whittle down your player pool, that's going to be in that email. The 10 facts, the famous 10 facts. If you've been following us for five or six years, you've seen them on our website. Now they're only in the heavy petting email. That hits on Tuesday. You're going to want to check that out. And my prize picks play of Thursday of round one. You know, Pat puts out his prize picks plays in the Fantasy Golf Sommelier video. I drop my favorite Thursday play in the heavy petting email. Then on Wednesday is the famous chalk bomb email where we go over the weather and we discuss are there weather advantages, are there not? Uh, we go over three head-to-head -head matchups that uh, catch our eye. And even if you don't bet head-to-head -head matchups, really what we're looking at is do they say anything about DFS? Do they tell us anything about what the sports bettors that bet head-to-heads, which are usually sharper players, what they're thinking about certain players, and can we learn anything? Can we pivot with ownership and GPPs, et cetera? Those head-to-head those -head matchup write-ups are key. And then, of course, the chalk bomb, the most bold piece of content in the DFS streets where we take one of the more popular projected players. They have to be projected at 15% or more, and we tell you why we, can't, we think you should consider avoiding them. These are two free emails. That's all it is. All you got to do is go to tourjunkies.com slash chalkbomb, or the link is in the description below. Subscribe for free. And you get both emails delivered to your inbox, one every Tuesday, one every Wednesday. And it's great free content straight to your inbox. Check it out. Subscribe below. 
Now let's get back to the show. There's, I've done, I'd say I I do quite well with new courses typically. Um, because I, I guess I, there are things you can know about them before players actually tee it up. Yeah. Um, and use the information. I don't want to say, I'm not going to go into detail, but I'm just going to say I use information that's available to me to figure out how I expect it to play. Okay. So, so when you're looking at course history specifically, you're, you're just judging someone off of plus or minus what you expected of them going into it. Like you're not looking at like any specific stat, like GIRs gained or anything like that. What gained? Green or uh, yeah, green regulation gained at a specific course. No, um, I'm looking, but I mean, I, I might, I, I'm, I'm seeing how much, how many strokes they gained off the tee relative to what I would have expected for them based on their skill in that particular course, things like that. I mean, I, I'm not doing it for greens and regulation specifically, but, but that's sort of the approach. It's, it's you, you need to, you need to control for how good the player was at, at that time, how they were playing at that time. Rather than just saying, oh, this guy's won here a bunch, right? It's like in football, the notion that you mm-hmm. hear the announcers always talk about home field advantage. And it's like, it's the Superdome always has a great home field advantage when the Saints are good. They're, they're always talking about that. Mm-hmm. That's the narrative, right? And then nobody's talking about if the Saints aren't good, their home field advantage. But it's like, yeah. That's right. Um, I, I know one theory that I've gone back and forth on a bunch of times is, is do you believe in good wind players? Ooh, this is something I've looked into a lot too. And again, I wish I had better data too with, in terms of like the wind on every shot that was hit. Like versus if you just have the, the weather data I have, you know, you have hourly observations. Um, the problem with that is it's not get, like, I think gusts are the thing that I don't, I'm not able to properly quantify and, and that I would like to because it's, I mean, it's really hard, right? I mean, even, I, mean, I don't think you're just, just, getting hourly weather data, even if it says wind 13 gusting 22, you don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of 13 gusting to 22s. I mean, it could be very different, I guess. And, and also wind. I mean, this is this, I can't figure out more, but, but wind obviously is going to affect different courses in different ways, depending on, you know, how open like links courses are. I think everybody knows wind has a massive impact on links courses. So, um, but in terms of, are there good wind players? I'm sure there are. I've not found like I've not found a lot of predictive value to that though. Again, like it's the kind of thing that's not going to move the needle more than like a few hundredths of a stroke per round. It, at least using the data I have. So does that mean that there are, are aren't good wind players and bad wind players? No, it just means that I'm not with with what I have able to really key in on it that well. I mean, I, I know the narratives like Shane Lowry and Alex Noren. Or the, the Texas guys that David mentions every Texas event. Hey, man. <laughs> I think but me, part of it might be the fact that there's different kinds of wind, right? And if you're just saying, oh, how did this guy do in windy rounds? Like, well, it might, a 15 mile an hour wind in, I don't know, what's a good example? Like, Augusta is different than in Texas. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Flor- Florida, you know, and it's going to be different in Florida versus like, Ohio, it's probably going to matter probably less on a hilly course with a lot of trees than, you know. It feels yeah, like it's just very, qual- it feels like it's just really qualitative again. It's kind of like preferring a certain green surface over another. It's like there's some guys you may hear 
you know, that love playing in the wind or they're comfortable playing in the wind or they grew up playing in the wind and they know how to, you know, they prefer it windy because they know they feel like they have an edge on everybody else. Like you either know that about a guy or maybe you don't. I love playing in the wind personally. Yeah. See, and I hate it. Like, and I'm going to gust the guy. We don't have wind. So it starts, blow- I'm going to Scotland in a couple of weeks. I'm going to, I'm going to be like, what the, f-? you know, like, so I, I would be opposite and that's just qualitative. Like, I don't know how I could really measure that. I might be good in the wind. Who knows? We'll find out in a couple of weeks. I love the creativity of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do like, I, I like being creative on the golf course. Usually my creativity comes from having to punch out somewhere. Yes. I love that. <laughs> I, yeah. That, so, that's, that's the best part of my game. My recovery shots. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, can, I can hook it around a tree or, you know, hit the little punch cut. Like, I swear, sometimes I'm better on those than in the middle of the fairway. The spirit of Bubba or Spieth just gets in your body for a second and you, you pull off a, a very artistic shot. I love it. Um, I, I can I can get down with that. Um, I'm not like, I'm not talking about my shot as much as Spieth is, though. No, I, no. He won't shut no. up. Yeah, you can only give the ball one command and, and Spieth breaks <laughs> that rule every shot. Are there, um, all right, I want to I wanna keep hitting with a few more of these stat things. So, like, We've obviously talked about some stats that we don't think are very viable, but for just the, okay, again, the beginner, think about the beginner DFS golf better listening who doesn't, isn't, doesn't have the ability to run a model or code like you're running. I mean, they, they can run models on certain applications like Fantasy National or something like that. I would say this. If you're not building a model, um, I mean, that's been my, my approach is basically like I'm trying to make true odds and then bet differences between my odds and what's available. Um, that's one way of doing it. The other, I think the other way, if you're not doing that, is sort of looking for an angle. It's saying that I don't think the market is accounting for this as much as it should. I don't know what the right price is, but I think that this is not being properly accounted for. Gotcha. So, and I think a lot of these narrative type things, like the win player stuff, if the market isn't accounting for that, if, if people like me can't find an effect and you think that there is an effect, you know, yeah. there's, you don't have to know what the effect is. You just need to be directionally correct. Like, listen, guys, Rufus is not a, you're not a tout, okay? You're not a guy who's, you're, prof- you're doing this professionally for a living. So I should have said that up front. Like, you're not going to give away all the secrets. And the, and well, I feel like I've already said way too much. Oh, <laughs> and, if, and I'm sure there are people, like, in their car listening to this or just screaming at us going, DB, ask this question. And I know that if I ask a question, he's not going to answer it. So it's okay. Like, we're, we're, we're very grateful for what Rufus has already uh, dealt, you know, divulged here. My, my problem is I, don't, I typically say too much. <laughs> okay. What about, what about form? Like, we haven't really talked about incoming form, recent form, long-term form. Like, how do you define those things? How do you approach weighting those things? Uh, I, I tend to look at certain, I mean, I, I tend to look at certain things, certain stats, if I'm going to look at them, I'm going to look at them only in long-term, you know, ranges, like a lot of putting stats. Um, if, if I were going to look at proximity numbers, I would only look at it in large, long-term looks. Do you agree with things like that? Or how do you, how do you look at form, uh, I guess, overall? So I, I don't really define it as short or long-term because I guess for each stat, I kind of have my own sort of weighting as it goes back um, in terms of like, okay, last week it's a weight of one. The week before that's a weight of 0.7. Uh, the week before yeah. that's a weight of 0.5. Right? I mean, it's, it's a... I built, I sort of found, I found the sort of shape and rate of decay that sort of optimizes predictive power. Yep. So it's, yeah. So I think doing, I think basically when people say, oh, you know, I look at last 10 rounds for this or last 20 rounds for this stat or whatever. Right. I mean, I think that's a way of, that that's their way of, of, yeah 
decaying and saying, oh, I'm going to look at last 10 more than I'm going to look at last 100 for this particular stat that you're saying, okay, well, last 10, like, matters more. I mean, it's a, a, a steeper drop-off, but it seems uh, like I don't think about it as, like, long-term, short-term now. Gotcha. It's like Honestly, most of the literature I've read over the years from mostly smart people that I've read um, tend to weigh long-term much heavier than short-term. And I think most beginner betters and beginner DFS players do it the exact reverse. They'll super weight recent form and almost don't even touch long-term form or, or longer, however you want to define that. Yeah, I mean, let's say you had, I mean, here, this is, here's an example. Let's say you have two golfers that are both have the same short-term and long-term. Actually, let's say they have this, the same, like, form over the last, like, two, three years. They're the same age. One of the, one of the guys, they're both, let's say they're both, like, 37-year-old guys. Like, one of the guys is a former major champion and was top, a top 10 in the world player in the past. I mean, actually, like Ricky Fowler, except if he had won a major yeah. and another guy's like, you know, someone who's been sort of a journeyman and he's now, he's kind of, he made it to the PGA tour and had a run where he's playing decent for a little while. Who would you expect to be better going forward? Uh, the guy that was good previously. Yeah, I agree with that. So. And in your experience, have you found that books are much more likely to price up a player? in markets that has been playing well recently versus an elite player. Like the, the specific example I'm thinking of is like Jordan Spieth in 2018, 2019, even some in 2020, where a lot of books were still pricing him at an elite level when, you know, he was clearly nowhere near that. And it, it seemed like it took a lot of them a long time to adjust them down, but then kind of once he found it again, it seemed like within two to three weeks, yeah. he was, Price right back up to where he had always been. So this is for outright markets, I assume you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So I mean, the thing with outright markets is they are they're one way, or they're 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 one way markets. You can bet on speed, but you can't bet against speed. unless you want to bet every other player. In which case, you're already guaranteeing <laughs> yeah. yourself a lot because <laughs> the forty percent hold, right? So so like it's like Tiger went off at twenty to one at some places last week. You know, I literally made his odds like. 1050 to one um to win so um but it, it's about it's it's in a way it's like supply and demand books know that that a lot of people are going to bet on these big name guys they're going to bet on speed they're going to bet on tiger um and so they are pricing it to sort of control their their liability um and they know that they can price gouge you on that but you know so yep. um so i so i think it's more a function of that like if you want to, and I don't think that phenomenon exists the same way in the matchup market. Any market where you can bet against a guy too, um, you're not really going to see that. Gotcha. I was going to ask you on the matchup thing: Is there a sports book out there that you find, you know, like when they when they release their head to head lines, you you tend to feel like you're in way closer agreement with that book than other books. In other words, like you're looking at it going, "Damn, I like can't find enough matchups here that I want to exploit because." This, I feel like this this book gets it right, according to your model and your brain, more so than others. I mean, I would I would say Bet Chris is going to be the best, probably. In my opinion, their their numbers are are definitely closest to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I want to talk about majors real quick. Then we're going to bring this to a close. Before I do that, though, I do want to give you an opportunity to, you know, and I know you said earlier you're not a great elevator pitch guy. Um, But you've got the Bet the Process podcast that people can listen to. You guys do that pretty frequently. um, So they can can check that out. Yep. And and that's all sports. It's not necessarily golf all the time. But um, yeah. We We also put on, we also do these um, sort of high stakes Calcuttas for for every major. And we've, and we've done it for like NBA playoffs, NCAA tournament, NFL playoffs. But we do it for every single major and for the players this year. And I mean, hell, the pot for, I think the pot for the, PGA one was um, over one and a quarter million, actually. Whoa. One and a quarter million Rufus coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, that's, that's sick. Me and Ben, me and ben and Pat play in a Calcutta. stable coin. We do, yeah. We do a Calcutta um, for majors every, every major. We, we've done pretty well in those. That's awesome. Calcutta's so, are so much fun. They're a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're, yeah. Well, that, that'll be a different podcast. We'll do a Calcutta-only show. Um, but before we get into like major stuff, you've got about the process, you've just kind of started unabated, I, I think. Um, and there's, I don't see any golf tools on there. There may not be any golf tools on there because you don't want to, no, there aren't. not at the moment. I mean, the thing is like, I don't think any, I think we'll have golf odds at some point for sure. An odd screen. But, um, I, I think that anything that we would do, like, I mean, like data golf probably already has mm-hmm. like, has that tool mm-hmm. and does it really well. Um, and so, you know, so, so what, but what unabated is, is I think actually you, I think you had a much better elevator pitch for it <laughs> than I'm going to have, but it's, it is tools for, for sports betters. We, we have an odd screen, we have a community, um, you know, it's, we help, you know, help you, um, find, well, we're not giving you the answers as much as we're giving you tools to find the answers, yep. I guess is a, a good way of putting it. But. Yep. And you got a lot of good calculators on there for people to um to do some research on i saw that that's that's pretty cool um, yeah we actually i actually debuted the uh, a hedge betting calculator um just on was it wednesday morning i think we launched it after after this whole mito Pereira thing and, and this discussion had sparked on twitter about whether i should have hedged my bet or not yeah and so i actually like like did the did the math i actually had to literally go like google how do you differentiate logarithms I, like to, I had to relearn some calculus um, for it, um, but it's uh, you can put in your bankroll how much you how much you stand to win if if your bet hits and what the probability of that bet hitting is, which you can find from markets and stuff like that, and then what price you could get um, on a hedge, and it'll give you what your optimal amount to hedge is. So, I, I think I, personally, I think it's really cool, and I've I didn't realize that hedging. I, I mean, it, I didn't realize that negative EV hedges were, as, were optimal in as many cases as they actually are. I feel like I was kind of raw because I'm always like, nah, you know what? I can, uh, I can eat the variance. I'm okay. I just want to, you know, but like, let, like, for example, even if I had, if I had a, let's say I had a $2 million bankroll and my bets on Pereira, I had $1,000 to win $300,000. Um, and I made Pereira, Forty-one and a half percent to win going into the final round, which is um, plus one forty-one. If I could have gotten minus one fifty uh, against Pereira, like sort of a yes/no bet, um, optimally, I, I still I would have wagered uh, over a hundred thousand on that, even though it's a negative two and a half percent edge. So I mean, that to me it kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, 
I wouldn't have thought that that would have been the the optimal thing to do. But wow, the point here is that so so this is it's not to get all too nerdy here, but but is a better you you shouldn't be maximizing your expected value. You should be maximizing your expected bankroll growth. So it's like if I gave you if I if I told you um you know I I would give you JT at a thousand to one to win the U.S. Open. You would clearly take that bet. Right. How much would you bet, though? Would you mortgage your house for that? Like, you wouldn't bet everything because, right. But the less you bet, the more you lose when you win. Yeah. As my friend Zach says, the, but the, right, the more you bet, the, the, the higher your expected profit's going to be. But at the same time, the more likely you go bust out overall. Yeah. So, so, it's, so that is basically what, what the hedging calculator is able to quantify. And that's because it's basically saying if you want to maximize your wealth from betting, this is what your optimal hedge is. We'll, uh, we'll put a link in the description. I love it. We'll put a link in the description to unabated. If people want to check that out. Um, it's a, it does seem like a got some great tools for other sports right now. Um, but we have, we have some cool live in-game tools too. Okay. So you can essentially like, I think that, you know, there's a lot of arbitrage opportunities and that kind of thing available. If you're in-game betting, like, I mean, right now it's not in season, but football, you know, basketball. Um, and so knowing the value of it, but it's hard to know, you know, one book might offer minus seven and a half. Um, another might have minus, you know, six at the stoppage and play. How much is that one and a half point worth? Mm-hmm. Right. And so we have tools basically that integrate with an odd screen that basically see to, to identify how much, um, how much sort of those differences are and to pinpoint where you can get value live betting. That's sick. Anything else yeah. you got? Anything else you want to pump or promote there, Rufus, before we move on? We have a cool NFL simulator too. You can okay. uh, simulate the entire regular season integrates with the odd screen. So you can see the, like see how your simulations show uh, value at, at books if you're betting futures. But ben, ben again, had- I need work on my elevator pitch. It's very, um, <laughs> disjointed it's <laughs> you, you need to uh you just need to record it like have a video produced for it and then we can just play the video in the middle of it um, yeah I'm, I'm like i'm talking about individual products basically yeah. i'm not good at you know the unify unifying them into this elevator yeah. pitch. um so i want to talk but about I'm, i love the products though i want to talk about majors real quick uh okay. and then and then we're gonna i'm gonna throw like some real quick firing ones at you and then we'll we'll wrap it up um how, does the process i doubt it does um I'm, I'm sure the process probably doesn't change for the majors if so how does it uh, do you research it any different um and in terms of especially outrights i'm interested there's a lot of discussion that sometimes goes around on like when when you should be firing on some of these outright numbers uh you know trying to predict wh- how the line's going to move the closer we get to it what have you found in that talk to me about majors so i do treat majors differently i mean i think that you kind of have to, and they are, they're, they're, they're different. Um, I mean, if I, you know, I'm not going to have Burks Kepka handicapped the same as I would a regular event because he actually cares yeah. and is going to practice for it. Strokes gain so, gives a shit, right? Right. Yeah. Actually, you know, one thing I really want to quantify someday is strokes gain tilt. Mm. I'm convinced, <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced that that has some impact on majors that I'm not able to capture that, that like, you know, when, when, Tyrrell Hatton just goes off, yes. like throws his club and is just like done for the round. Yeah. And, and, it's, you know, it's like when you hit a good shot and it's not rewarded yeah. um, and you get a bad outcome, which golfers are able to handle that adversity. I feel like there is, and, 
And so, I mean, some golfers are clearly better in majors than others relative to their, their sort of normal. And I think a lot of that may be the fact that some golfers are just not able to handle that. Like what was the Jack Nichols quote that like, he knows that he can half the field's already lost before they even tee it up. Um, so I do more prep work for majors too, just because simply I'm, I'm, able, I'm able to get so much more down. So um, there's, you know, there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I, I don't actually bet anything on majors before major weeks, typically, just because in my process, I don't have it built out to do that. Like I have my, you know, numbers for where golfers are now. And I guess I could do that. But like the, but the thing is, th- those are all situational based too. So, you know, that's if, if, like my number on JT right now isn't going to be, or my number, my number on ROM this week isn't going to be the same as it would be the week of the open. Right. Even if he doesn't play between now and then, right. Cause yep. he has got a layoff and then we have to change how things are weighted and things like that. So, so um, it is something, you know, that I, I do think there are opportunities though, if you're betting ahead of time, because I think books are oftentimes slow to update, uh, to update those lines. I mean, hell you could just, look at the leaderboard today or something. If you, if you, if someone who's a U.S. open qual, like who, who's qualified for the U S open um, at long odds has been playing really well this week and the odds haven't updated. I mean, yep. like we're, we're what three weeks away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, that stuff does matter. And I'm, I'm actually going to beat the open this year. At the, at the open championship or the U S open? The U S open. Yeah. Uh, and Brookline. Nice. Yeah. So, so I want to I want to talk to you about the U.S. Open for just a few seconds here, or, or minutes. How do you attack a U.S. Open? Do you attack do you attack that one any different? Um, are you already starting your research and specifically on Brookline? Have you already started all that and and talk to us about your thoughts on on the U.S. Open so far? I have not started my research on Brookline yet. Um, I have like I mean, we don't have a lot of data to go off of in the modern modern era no and where where we actually would have good data just because i mean what what was the, the last big event was at the Ryder cup there yes mm-hmm. uh, the the with sergio and everything yeah yeah david duvall i, I remember seeing I, I saw some i saw 99 i watched i watched some of it like a year ago i think um on youtube it's That's great looking shirts team shirts yeah, seriously the baggy pants like mm-hmm. style was at its its peak then but no. I think there's there's commonalities in U.S. Open courses, and I know it's it's evolved over the years. Back, it used to be sort of courses where I mean the courses that Graham McDowell was good at, right? I mean, like basically you hit it in the fairway, you miss the fairway, it's like a stroke penalty. You're punching out, um, and you know you had Chambers Bay and stuff like that, which kind of sort of changed things where where, where the USGA decided to kind of. Yep. go away from that sort of formula. Um, but clearly they still are going to try to set it up to be a really, really hard course. You know that. And so I do think there's some commonalities. There are also, there's some differences too. And I think kind of the, the hard parts trying to find, find those and to, and to figure out what it's going to reward and, and what it's going to penalize in terms of um, aspects of, of a golfer's game. So Rob, would you agree that the, harder or more penal a golf course is the higher generally the variance in outcomes is going to be i think it's going to depend on what makes it hard so if you have a lot more 
OB and you know penalty strokes coming into play, I think you're probably going to get more variance. But I mean, a lot of I think about something like Harding Park where there there's not a lot of I mean I don't there's no water hazards really. I don't think this is one right. It's mm-hmm. guys are making a lot of bogeys, but there's not a lot. You're not seeing a lot of triple bogeys, or it's just it's it, it's hard in a sort of organic way without you know without a ton of water. And and so I think that that's gonna um. I think that's probably going to have different different variance profile than, you know, a course in Florida like, like I don't PGA know. National. Yeah, that was, that was my first thought with all the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the- but but you're talking are you talking about variance around a, a player's projection? Or are you talking about how much? I mean, because there, there's that, and then there's the fact like how much does a course reward skill? Like how random is it? How how much is it a or you know? We know how John Rom feels about putting contests. Yeah, <laughs> the Amex. Yeah, it, it it would just make it it makes intuitive sense to me that the easier a course is, the the tighter a player's distribution would be for expected outcome. Versus, you know, like a PGA National where you know a shot that is you know a foot short of where it's supposed to land, you know, could have been a exactly where they were aiming, but a gust of wind kicks it. Now they're making a triple bogey and they hit the shot just like they wanted to hit it. You know, I've, I've never thought about it that way, actually. But I think, I mean, if you think about it more globally with like amateurs, the variance for like a guy that, you know, an 18 handicap is probably going to be a lot higher per round. Right. So, yeah, I think that may, I think that definitely makes sense. I haven't actually looked at it that way. I have like, cert, I, I, def, I, I have a predicted course variance for each course based on, um, based on what what it's been in the past, but I could look at that and see actually. Gotcha. So something to put on the testing to do list. Yeah, I'll <laughs> let you know. Um, safe to say, at, you know, with the U.S. Opens in general, like it sounds like you're thinking in terms of looking back at maybe previous performance uh, that a player may have at at some of these more recent U.S. Opens and the setups there, starting around cha- that Chambers Bay time. Uh, maybe you could even throw in a course like Kiowa last year. It felt like that kind of played similar to a U.S. Open. Um, so you're, it sounds like you're saying, like, looking back at, at past performances there uh, could be worth maybe more so than a, a typical week on tour just looking at regular course history. Um, would you agree with that, or is that not what you think? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think in general, I mean, I think majors in general more than necessarily just U.S. Opens just because I think there is something about the major pressure. Yep. Um, but in terms of course fit, that's without having data on the course, that is kind of where finding like in previous, I guess, finding previous opens or courses, like you said, that, that it seemed to have similar setups. Um, that's, I'm not going to say like course correlation or being like, okay, we don't have any course history. Let's look at these courses that are, that I think are, are similar and see, what that course fit is. And yeah. I mean, there's, I'll say there's a lot more art to majors than a normal week, just because you are dealing with, you have less data to work with typically. I mean, on, you know, you, t- you have a lot of courses that are not, you know, played year in and year out. I mean, I don't, yep. except for, I mean, Augusta is, is, you know, the one that is, but, uh, and so you're, uh, it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, there, there, there's certainly more art and you're trying to sort of find things in different ways because you don't have the, the data in front of you, which can create opportunities though, because 
you know, not, yeah, you have to look at things in sort of unique, creative ways. Love that. All right. Um, so Rufus, I want to, I want to hit some, some quick questions here and then we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. We appreciate you, you doing this. Um, so, and Ben, you can fire off some of these off the top of your brain too, if we if you think about them. I do want to ask you about prize picks and like prop stuff. Have you played any of that? Have you started looking at any of that um, in terms of those, those new kind of players that have come into the market um, and give you opportunities? I, I don't, I don't know how uh, how open they would be to taking some of the, the size bets that you'd be willing to make on them. But have you looked at any of those prop situations or, or uh, you know, in terms of golf? I, I personally haven't. Um, I know people that, I mean, I know my friend, Peter, who Jenny's here, yep. I think, you know, um, it, you know, he, he, he talks about that kind of stuff, but I've never done anything with it now. Gotcha. Um, all right. So who's like, give me a couple of golfers that you just, you're very bullish on in general, like you, you, and not, you know, obviously not like John Rom, but like, who are some guys that you just feel like are going the right direction? Like you're bullish on them. And then give me a couple that you're, you're pretty cold on, kind of bearish on. So I can, I guess I can tell you some guys I bet on a lot over okay. the last year or so. Um, I don't think, I don't, I'm more jaded about them than anything though. I'm just, <laughs> oh, damn it, I have to bet them again. Like Patrick Rogers. Is an oh, of one. fuck that guy. Oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way about him. Um, EVR, although EVR did, did, did hit, like, did bink one for me. Did he? The, uh, it was the Reno Tahoe, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never really, he's one I've never really fired on. Okay. This is fun. I like, I, I like, hearing like this. yeah. Who else? You know, I, I thought about posting that ticket last week and saying, well, that hurts. EVR <laughs> 2.5 to 1. <laughs> uh, nice. The David's guy for a long time was Luke List. And I think even after David successfully hit Luke List, I think he's still down overall yeah. on him. Yeah. He's been a popular one. Like over the years, like I feel like I've bet on so many guys that are really good at getting second place, like mm-hmm. Jim Furyk, Sergio Garcia. Um, so yeah, Rogers, EVR. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I f- it feels like it, for outrights every week and top X stuff, it's a lot of these sort of under the radar guys that are, yeah. Um, I will say this though. I mean, it feels like it goes through. I go through phases. Like I used to be always betting against Patrick Reed. I never had bet on Patrick Reed until like, like middle of last year, I was betting on Patrick Reed. I, I bet on Patrick Reed, I think last week for something. I mean, I bet, you know, so it's, it feels like there's sort of, you know, like I'm on ROM. I've been on ROM a lot the last few years, but I, before that I was actually, I, I remember betting against him his first major. Um, or was it his first major? It was, it was, I forget, it was a U.S. Open. I, I just, I still remember he was like four over half the first round. I don't know what major it was, but I was watching and being very happy about that. So I don't, I mean, guys that I'm against um, a lot are probably going to be, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like there's less of a pattern than there used to be for me. Like I bet on speed this week. I mean, not to win, but, but I have him I'm at, in a matchup against Scheffler actually. Hmm. Um, although again, it's price dependent, right? Um, yeah. I don't think Speed's better golfer than Shuffler. It's re- it's so really. So I, I, don't, I don't know who I'm against. Like, this is how I know that I am 
a lot dumber than than Rufus because Rufus is so smart and he's got all this data that that is is keeping him from saying names. Whereas I have all this just pain and heartache and hurt and like just qualitative feelings about these guys that I can rattle off a slew of these guys. Rufus doesn't. Oh, want I, have, I have lots of qualitative feelings <laughs> okay. about guys. Okay. Believe me. <laughs> what about what do you think about Siwoo Kim? Give me your take on Siwoo Kim. As well. Oh God, I bet on that guy. It seems like uh, yeah. I, I feel like I've I used he's guy used to always be to bet against and now i've been betting on him a lot lately yeah, yeah. And i'm sure i'll bet against him at some point too if depending on where you know he yeah. goes it's like with some of these guys if, if you either either i'm right or the market's right and eventually the market will come to me or i'll go down to, back to the market but siwoo kim definitely has high strokes gain tilt or strokes lost tilt yes oh yeah yes he does he, he is he's that guy looks like he's never smiled in his life He's frustrating to watch, like because he's such a he's a great approach player, huh? Rufus, he has smiled at me twice this year. Wow! Yeah, I've got him to smile at me twice, and he gave me a thumbs up. I mean, that's probably more than his girlfriend or wife. Yeah, yeah, but girlfriend right now. Um, big Siwoo guy here. What about uh, who's your big Siwoo guy? Too. He just hasn't. He's cost me money. I mean, yeah, it's been like oh, outright markets, basically. Yeah, same, same. Um, who's your so favorite? Who's your favorite Twitter follow? It can be out of anything. Just name some good Twitter follows you like. Some good Twitter. I mean, you don't follow us man, yet, you so you can't say that. But hopefully, after this, Ooh, well, I'm going to follow you after this okay. for sure. Okay. Um, you know, I think it depends. On, I mean, it uh, depends on what you're looking for, right? I mean, in the sports betting world, like I think Captain Jack is fantastic. Um, you know. <laughs> I think the most boring follow in the world is Peter Jennings. Yeah, yeah don't follow yeah. that guy. But, but his wife is probably his wife is. Oh God, very her, good. Yeah, very good. I'm actually going to be. I'm heading to Colorado tomorrow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be. I'm going to hopefully get around in with with them. Um, nice. But awesome. yeah, his his wife's Twitter is is fire. She's electric. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She should have married somebody way cooler than Peter. Seriously. <laughs> uh, do you listen to any podcasts or watch any any other like content on YouTube? I'm sure I'm sure you probably don't or have time, but. Believe it or not, I, you know, I used to, but the last few years I consume very little sports betting content or mm-hmm. sports, like, you know, my pot, when I listen to podcasts now, it's generally non-sports stuff. Yep. I just want to you know, get a, get away from it for, for a little bit. Yep. I get that. What would you, what about you guys? Uh, yeah. I mean, if it's not sports betting related, mine's usually, uh, anything with Theo Vaughn that he makes me laugh. Um, he's a comedian. So I do that. Uh, ben probably listens to stuff that makes him smarter, makes him win more, make more money <laughs> in, in the market. I don't do that. I just listen to guys uh, make me laugh. I did hear you say fooled by randomness. Uh, Nassim Taleb, all of his books. Uh, I, I think I've read all of them at least six or seven times. I'm, I think I'm on like number 15 of listening to The Black Swan. Um, the I'm the same as you. Like I'm, I'm not a big sports consumer. Um, if I'm listening to books or podcasts, um, you know, like I, I like Tim Ferriss a lot. Um, and if you're looking for a good like golf performance book, be a player. I've really enjoyed that one. I listened to it multiple times. It's a good like mental model for how to not have strokes gain tilt or, or lack thereof. Um, yeah, I've I've read When Money Dies a couple times recently um, by Adam Ferguson. Um, like all Malcolm Gladwell stuff, 
um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. All right, that's enough. This, this is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke was a great one. This guy is very smart. This is not about you. This is not about you. Um, read to let six or seven times each. Damn, that that's I, I've read the I've read them once, but um, that's impressive. I mean, it, it it takes multiple times of reading them to like really comprehend and wrap your mind around what he is conveying to you because it's a lot of the stuff. The first time I read it was the exact opposite of the way that I approached trading and looking at financial markets and things like that. So it's probably, probably been the most impactful book of my life. Do you, that's awesome. I need to go back and read it again. I think. Rufus, do you, uh, do you read any like transcripts from player interviews or if you see a player get interviewed on a show somewhere, do you ever listen to those to try to pick up on anything from the player himself? I don't that much. I mean, if someone brings something to my attention, um, I think my brother, my brother does a little more of that than I do. Gotcha. But. Okay. Um, I like this question. If I, if, if I could genuinely come to you and say, Hey, uh, you can play Augusta national. Um, you have to make an offer of how much you're willing to pay Augusta national to let you play. And you get one offer and they're either going to accept it. And if they accept it, you have to, you have to pay it or they're going to reject it. What's your offer? That's a really good question actually. Yeah. I think it depends on how how my how my betting's been going lately probably. <laughs> uh, so maybe Am I getting well, what time of year am I getting to play it? <laughs> you pick whatever time you want. I would I mean having caddy there, I would say uh the 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 weekend uh the weekend before is a pretty good time to play. Um or no, I guess it, they the weekend before oh, they have the women's yeah yeah before everything gets mm-hmm. going for the women's am that uh that would be a pretty good time to play it so i'd say that it's gonna be hot but yeah usually october november would be ideal you know i mean it's not gonna be as pretty yeah but that's yeah. yeah no no you, you want the you want the prettiness you want that experience and, and yeah. you want the course in as much tournament condition as as possible so that's the time to play it Okay, I'm gonna. I'm I'm kind of cheap, and and I enjoy golfing anywhere. Too, so like, it doesn't matter how nice the course is. I'm gonna have a great time anyway. So I'm 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 gonna say twenty thousand. Okay, all right. That's I'm reasonable. not gonna go super high. That's reasonable. Interesting. Okay. Uh, listen, Rufus, I appreciate it, man. This has been great. It's been fun talking to you. You're uh, a cool guy and and a smart guy. Obviously, we we thank you for spending some time with us, making us hopefully better golf betters or thinking through our process a little differently, maybe. Uh, but everybody should follow Rufus on Twitter. Um, and check out the, the, the Bet the Process podcast as well and, and go check out Unabated. Um, and Rufus will be tracking you, man, and pulling for you next time. You know, uh, hopefully, you know, we, we can both sweat a big Siwoo Kim ticket together one day. That could be fun. Yeah. Um, that'd be great. But uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the Tour Junkies podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Really enjoyed it.